printed brochure listing these is in the press and should be in the mail to you before the end of this week. I'm sorry it hasn't been done a little bit more quickly, so we could have actually advertised this lecture in advance formally. Next Monday, John Dreyfus, or that is to say a week from Monday, the 8th of October, John Dreyfus, as you know, will be speaking on Cobden Sanderson. And the following Monday, the 15th, Mary Pollard, who has recently retired as keeper of printed, as assistant keeper printed, assistant keeper of older printed books at Trinity College Dublin, who will be speaking on the older printed books at Dublin on Monday the 15th, and then on her own great specialty, the 18th century Irish book trade, on Tuesday the 16th, the following evening. The Monday following, Stephen Erkowitz, who is Associate Professor of English at Hofstra University, will be speaking on voodoo bibliography, reevaluating Shakespearean textual studies. On Monday the 12th of November, John Fuggles, who is Library's Advisor to the National Trust in England, will be speaking on books in 18th century English country houses. And then John Dreyfus makes a return engagement on Thursday the 15th of November, speaking on the making of the Golden Cockerel for Gospels. On Monday the 26th of November, just after Thanksgiving, Richard Flint, the curator of prints and photographs at the Peel Museum in Baltimore, will be speaking on 19th century poster advertising and printing, the example of the American circus. Many of you will have seen his long good article on that subject in the now defunct quarterly journal of the Library of Congress. On Monday the 3rd of December, Ellen Dunlap, the new director of the Rosenbach Museum and Library in Philadelphia, will be speaking with the subject One Year In, Reflections After a Year as Director of the Rosenbach, a nice pendant to this evening's lecture. And then finally, in the first semester sequence, on Monday the 10th of December, David Vandermeulen from the English Department at the University of Virginia with the title, Where Angels Fear to Tread, Problems and Method in the Bibliographical Description of Pope's Dunciad. And I suspect there'll be a Christmas party along about then as well. Our lecture tonight will be followed by a reception in the Book Arts Press, room 502, the refurbished, redecorated Book Arts Press, for those of you who haven't been around in the past couple of weeks, to which I hope you will all uh, come long enough to have a fig bar and a glass of wine at least. Our lecturer this evening is Carol Briggs from the William Andrews Clark Memorial Library at UCLA, a 1981 graduate of the Rare Book Program of the School of Library Service, with the title, Three Years Out, Reflections of a Young but Rapidly Aging Rare Book Librarian. Carol Briggs. I told Terry that um, the title of my paper really shows the power of words and the power of the printed word. I didn't feel rapidly aging until he asked me to do this paper, and I think I've gotten a few gray hairs and wrinkles since I started work on it. So let me begin. In Tabernier's film, A Week's Vacation, the protagonist, the school teacher in the middle of grading a set of themes, takes the papers and tosses them down the incinerator. In the audience, there's an immense sigh of relief and several people clap. I was one of those. Five years ago, as I sat in front of a stack of freshman compositions wondering, is this all there is? I decided to toss those themes down the incinerator, as it were, to leave that career of explaining topic sentences behind and get my MLS. 
opting for a career in which I could at least look at books, read Dryden or Pope without having to explicate a heroic couplet to engineering students and dental hygienists, or read Blake and Stern without having first to read Derrida and Heidegger. Not that I minded about with literary criticism every once in a while. I just didn't see myself as a theoretician. Many of you have recently been through the routine, pick several schools to apply to, write lots of essays on why I want to go to library school. Well, there's one school you want to go to, several that are second choices. You send your applications in the mail and wait. I really wanted to go to Columbia because of the rare books program and because of New York. Not only had I been teaching freshman composition, I'd been stuck in the Midwest for three years and I wanted out. I came back to the East with great expectations. And my reaction after a week at this most highly touted library school, boy, did I make a mistake. After a few days of class, I thought I could forget books once again. We weren't to speak of them except in terms of collection development or as items to be classified, and never to speak of them as texts we like to read or physical objects we like to fondle. Forget New York. I knew I was in Manhattan only because the Sunday Times cost a dollar and the cockroaches could withstand my Midwest combat tactics. However, one soon gets the hang of library school. One eventually meets people who are interested in books and who like to read. Sometimes they're one and the same. One discovers that there is life past 114th Street and that one can venture forth beyond those iron gates, not guilty for not memorizing Dewey numbers or LC subject headings. And for the next nine months, I had a pretty good time. I studied the book and the history of the book. I studied type, book illustration, bibliography, manuscripts, and archives management. I took reference courses, computer courses, and cataloging courses. I had an internship at the Grolier Club. I took an outside course in calligraphy from Alice. It was the one course in library school that reduced me to tears. I had a job at the Butler Reference Department, which introduced me to reference work and all the prestige and glory that goes with public services. I can't begin to describe the power I felt standing behind the Butler reference desk or the insecurity as I discovered all that I didn't know. I did freelance bibliographical work for a P.G. Wodehouse exhibition at the Morgan Library, freelance indexing with Dorothy McDonald, who introduced me to the New York publishing game. I went to lectures sponsored by the Friends of the Book Arts Press and the New York chapter of the American Printing History Association and exhibitions at the Grolier Club, the Morgan, and the New York Public Library. And at the end of the program, I didn't have a job. Well, it wasn't a long wait, and there were possibilities. Um, after a few months, I did get a job in a rare book library, not in public services, however, but in technical services, the ultimate irony. The job was manuscript cataloging at UCLA's Clark Library, a temporary one-year soft money position to catalog manuscripts from the 17th and 18th century England, my period of interest. Except for the fact that it was a temporary position, except for the fact that it was in Los Angeles, and except for the fact that it was technical services. Who could ask for anything more? <laughs> that the position was temporary didn't bother me very much. In fact, the temporary status of the job was to its advantage. After all, the Clark was in Los Angeles. And who wants to live in Los Angeles, I thought, with all the East Coast New York prejudice I could muster. That it was a technical services position, well, I wasn't able to resolve that. 
For those of you who don't know the William Andrews Clark Library, a bit of history and promotion. The library was founded by William Andrews Clark Jr., lawyer and philanthropist, and heir to a mining fortune made by his father, Senator Clark, in the copper fields of Arizona and Montana. Clark Jr. entered that particularly exciting book world of the early 20s. A dilettante scholar and lover of Renaissance literature, Clark began his collection of Shakespeare and Bacon, ready to go against the big guns of Morgan, Folger, and Huntington, only to realize that he was, to put it quite crudely, a day late and a dollar short. Morgan, Folger, and Huntington had been collecting these books for years. The prices were high, the books were fiercely sought, and Clark soon knew that he wouldn't be able to form the kind of research collection he wanted. One of his mentors, New York bookseller George Smith, suggested that he look to the 18th century as a period ripe for collecting in the way that he knew Clark wanted to collect, and one with distinctive literary merit besides. Clark heeded Smith's advice and began collecting restoration in 18th century literature, building an extensive, comprehensive collection. And we have built on this collection. Today, the Clark houses some 80,000 printed books and 18,000 manuscripts. Our primary collection broadly represents 17th and 18th century English culture, with particular concentration on the period 1640 to 1750. All aspects of English life and thought, literary, historical, scientific, and musical, are richly documented. Outstanding within this collection are the Dryden and Drydeniana holdings, the most extensive outside the British Library. The Clark also has the largest collection of Oscar Wilde material in an American research library, including manuscripts, books, photographs, and ephemera. Other important collections deal with Montana history and modern fine printing. A small fire in his residence on West Adams hastened Clark in his plans to construct a building for his collection. He hired noted California architect Robert Farquhar and sent him on a tour of the private libraries in the East and in Europe. We have wonderful letters in the archives from um, Farquhar telling about his visits with Belle de Costa Green at the Morgan and with George Parker Winship at Harvard, who turned out to be a classmate of Farquhar's. Farquhar returned to California and built for Clark a library, a gentleman's library, in a peculiarly eclectic style, the Californian's interpretation of Sir Christopher Wren's interpretation of Italian Baroque, a brick and marble exterior, and an interior complete with bronze bookcases, a marbled vestibule, a paneled e English oak drawing room with murals on the ceilings, Persian rugs and alabaster chandeliers, now set in a large spacious lawn in one of the more acceptable ghettos in Los Angeles. In 1926, Clark deeded his library to the University of California Southern Branch, now called UCLA, dedicating it to his father as John Nicholas Brown did to his. When Clark died in 1934, the library of 14,000 volumes and 8,000 manuscripts became part of the University of California system. With the gift of the library, Clark also gave $1.5 million to the university to ensure the proper growth and preservation of his collection and his library building. And for the past 50 years, the Clark, although located 10 miles away from UCLA's Westwood campus, has been a part of the UCLA library system. And it has grown. From its earliest days, members of the public used the collection, and classes from UCLA's English department studied 18th century literature and bibliography at the library. With our first underground expansion, several professors found office space away from the matting crowd on the university campus. 
The decision to publish the works of John Dryden, using the Clark as the headquarters for research, brought the library into prominence, where it has remained. From its several dozen visitors each year, the Clark now has more than several thousand, on the average of 600 tours and meetings each year. Our readers number in the hundreds, working in all areas of the collections. Through grants from various foundations and from our own endowment, the Clark sponsors around 20 short-term fellowships a year and a summer program in which six junior scholars are invited to the Clark to study with a senior scholar. We were also chosen, along with the Newberry and the Folger Libraries, as the recipient of an American Society for 18th Century Studies Matching Fellowship grant. Each year we have in residence a Clark professor who is responsible for arranging a series of lectures on a particular theme. Last year, Commander Derek Howes of the Greenwich Royal Observatory led a series of lectures entitled The Age of Discovery, Voyage and Exploration in the 18th Century. This year, we return to established civilizations as Eugene Weber from UCLA's History Department leads us in an exploration of the culture of cities in the 18th century. Besides its very active fellowship program and lecture series, the Clark has an equally active publications program. The most prestigious of our publications is the Clark Professor Lecture Volumes, published each year by the University of California Press. The oldest of the library's publication series is our seminar papers. Our most successful series is published by our Augustan Reprint Society, a nonprofit organization which reproduces rare and significant restoration in 18th century text and photographic facsimile, each accompanied with a scholarly introduction. One of the more recent reprints, The Reformed Library Keeper, published in 1650 and written by John Dury, deputy librarian of the King's Library in St. James Place, discusses the librarian's role in reforming the intellectual institutions of England preparatory to the millennium. Our newest publication, the Clark Newsletter, is our most popular, with about 4,000 individuals and institutions subscribing. Published twice a year, the newsletter apprises readers of our events and other activities, as well as offers a wide array of articles on most aspects of our collections. We welcome names to add to our mailing list, so if you're interested, let me know. When the library came to UCLA, the staff consisted of a curator, Ms. Cora Sanders, who had been secretary to Clark and to his two wives, and her assistant. The library, while an appreciated gift, was something of a problem. The university was not sure what to do with it. Ten years after acquiring it, the university appointed a board of governors to oversee its activities. Today, we are still governed by this Clark committee, although a few of the members have changed. At the titular head of the library is the director, Professor Norman J.W. Thrower of UCLA's Geography Department. Responsible for the day-to-day -day operations is the librarian, Thomas F. Wright. Three other librarians comprise a professional staff, a reference acquisitions librarian, John Bidwell, a catalog librarian, um, Patrick McCluskey, and me, manuscript librarian archivist. The support staff consists of a reading room supervisor and two pages, usually students from UCLA's library school who are interested in special collections librarianship. There's an administrative assistant, a cataloging assistant, and two editors and their assistants in the editorial department. I was hired at the Clark with the job title of manuscript cataloger, and when I arrived, I found out two things. There was a great need for a manuscript cataloger, but there was also a need for much, much more. The manuscript collection at the Clark is small, approximately 18,000 items, with the bulk of the material in the Oscar Wilde and Eric Gill collections. Most of the wild material is cataloged. 
The Eric Gill collection has been worked on over the years by various cataloging assistants, and there's still a lot of work to do. The 17th and 18th century materials had not really been cataloged at all. Well, that's a bit of an exaggeration. About a thousand items had been cataloged, some Dryden letters, some commonplace books, and some music, and sermons. However, the cataloging was rudimentary at best. The Clark's cataloging manual was written in 1936. I was handed a carbon copy of the 1939 revision with the word draft penciled in on the cover. Um, I could see what my task was, my first task. In a hurry to move the Clark into the 1980s, I wrote to the Library of Congress for the AACR2 Guide to Manuscript Cataloging. This time I was sent a photocopy document with the phrase, draft, sixth revision, 1981, on the cover. Um, I can happily say, though, that the um, Library of Congress has recently published the AACR2 Guide to Manuscript Cataloging, and it's made my life a lot easier. Undaunted, though, I proceeded to catalog manuscripts. And if anyone is interested in the kind of work that I do, I'll be happy to discuss this informally with you after the talk. One of the joys in working with a small collection is that you can learn or at least look at most of the items. I, I arrived at the Clark only a few weeks after one of our professors plowing through the collection found a Defoe item known from a bibliography but which had not been seen by any Defoe scholar to date. It had been cataloged under its title by a Clark librarian about 30 years ago. Adding to our Defoe collection, we purchased at a Sotheby auction in 1981 a 10-page manuscript with two pages in Defoe's hand, entitled Humana Mestorare, Mistakes on All Sides or an Inquiry into the Vulgar Errors of the State, making us the only library in the United States to possess two holograph manuscripts of Defoe's writings. Another interesting addition to the Defoe collection is one of the wills of Alexander Selkirk, the sailor on whose life Defoe based Robinson Crusoe. The will had originally been in the library of George Chalmers, Defoe's first biographer. We recently acquired a clump of Dryden materials, a genealogy of the Dryden family signed in 18, 1684 by John Dryden of Chesterton, a prologue to Marriage a la Mode with six unknown variants and an added seven lines, two of which were not known, and my favorite new Dryden acquisition, a letter written by the poet to his kinswoman, Elizabeth Stewart, the first Dryden letter to come to auction since 1940, and the first Dryden Stewart letter to appear since 1856. Our latest Isaac Newton acquisition documents closely Sir Isaac's famous controversy with Flamsteed. Other items of interest in the collection? A Johnson letter and a Boswell letter bound together in a red Morocco folder, while not unknown, were uncatalogued. An important run of Yeats' letters lay undiscovered in the Wilde collection. Several Poe manuscripts bought by Clark had been left in the vault for 50 years, also uncatalogued. A wonderful copy of Alan Ramsey's essay, The Art of Beauty, also existed in the library with, a man with manuscript notations by Hogarth. The manuscript notations were not mentioned anywhere in cataloging, and we found it only by chance going through inventory. A more recent discovery, very um, appropriate in light of the 200th anniversary of Samuel Johnson's death, was an inscribed copy of the Dictionnaire de l'Académie Française from Samuel Johnson's library the copy given him by the French Academy in exchange for his dictionary, and which he then presented to his doctor, Richard Brocklesby. Now, there are lots of sermons, commonplace books, journals, and letters, mostly anonymous, all awaiting to be cataloged by an eager young cataloger fresh out of library school. Remember that I said my soft money grant 
was for the year. Surveying my domain, I decided, perhaps a bit optimistically, that yes, within a year, with hard work and with total concentration and dedication to cataloging, okay, I could get most of the manuscripts cataloged with temporary or rudimentary cataloging for the rest. Observation number one, often one's job description does not necessarily define one's job. Within days of coming to the Clark, I discovered that if one even looks interested in taking on other duties, one gets those duties. First, the archives came my way. The fall seminar of the Clark season the year I arrived was on our founder and the history of the library and on his role in the development of the Los Angeles Philharmonic. The obvious source for both talks was the archives. The paper on the library was given by William Conway, former librarian of the Clark, who arrived at the library in 1940 and retired 40 years later. He knew the archives. When it came time to check the documentation of his paper, however, he was not around, and the editorial staff turned to me. I had heard of the archives, but had not been at the Clark long enough to venture forth into the recesses of the second annex to see exactly what they involved. When I did, I was surprised. The archives consisted of a range of shelves with numerous unlabeled boxes and mysteriously labeled brown paper packages. There were shelves of little brown envelopes in neat alphabetical order. The alphabetical order was developed by a former librarian, quite arbitrarily by assigning titles. This was the same librarian who cataloged the Defoe item those 40 years ago by title. The archives were a mess. And because archives are papers, and because I cataloged papers, voila, they became my territory. The archives span almost 200 linear feet, which isn't much when you consider that UCLA has almost 18 million items in its collections. In the Clark's archives, about half of those feet are business records which document UCLA's parentage of the Clark, the disposition of fellowships, who took whom to lunch, a record of founders days, seminars, book buying excursions, invoices, and bibliographical inquiries all interesting to anyone who wants to study the growth of a gentleman's library into an active research institution with an international reputation. I told you this was PR. The real meat of the archives, however, is about 50 feet of records in which one can watch the development of the Clark Library, from Clark's first invoice in 1917 to his deed of gift, his will, and newspaper clippings announcing his death in 1934. From these records, one gets a sense of Clark the man and his position in and contribution to the book world of the 20s. My second added duty came from a very involved set of circumstances which don't merit elaboration in this talk. In our cataloging department, besides me, there's a catalog librarian who catalogs our rare books and a catalog assistant who types and files catalog cards. Sounds very simple. Not much interest had been taken in cataloging the reference collection, however, and we reached a point where readers were turning in more call slips for our temporary reference collection than for the cataloged reference or for the cataloged rare. And when temporary reference books had to be found, most of the work at the library ceased as staff members searched for a volume, which might be either in the temp ref collection or in the temp ref folio section located at another end of the library or in the lounge on a current bookshelf, or in a reader's cubicle, or in the librarian's office on the third floor. 
because we didn't have enough available shelf space to keep all in catalog reference books together and keep them under some sort of control, the obvious solution to this problem was to catalog the books. Observation number two, never make a suggestion unless you're prepared to follow it through. If these works were to be catalogued, I was the one to do it. And because we're so far from campus, and because a lack of funding, and because the Clark five years ago was not really interested in automated cataloging, all reference cataloging was, in a sense, original cataloging, and took much more time than people thought it was worth. I began the job by first working with CIP information until I got the hang of it. You see, cataloging was not my favorite subject in school. And then, as luck and goodwill would have it, we were able to get a set of the National Union catalog at the Clark. With that acquisition and with our microcomputer access to the records at UCLA, we've been able to reduce the backlog of our uncatalogued reference books by about 75%. And at this stage, have such an efficient system that often, often reference books are cataloged and on the shelves before all accessioning materials are filed, much to the annoyance of our acquisitions librarian and the pages who can always find more interesting tasks than filing cards. And, and an aside here, I really have become enamored with cataloging, particularly manuscript cataloging. It's a lot of fun, difficult and frustrating, um, but challenging and rewarding. The Clark's methods of cataloging, too, are getting ready for a big change, which is also quite exciting. We've just purchased an IBM PC with OCLC capabilities, and we'll soon be able to do most of our cataloging online, much to the joy of several of us at the library much to the joy of the UCLA Library Administration, and I hope to the joy of the rest of the OCLC universe. However, with the archives and reference books added to my responsibilities, I soon realized that my goal for finishing the manuscripts within a year was a bit unreasonable. But at that point, the librarian informed me that money was forthcoming for another six months. And by this time, I was beginning to discover that Los Angeles was not so bad. I discovered that it was just as easy to drive to Dorothy Chandler Pavilion to see Giulini as it was to take the number one to Avery Fisher. And it was easier to get to Malibu than to Jones Beach. I discovered that LA had, in fact, not only a Chinatown, but a little Tokyo, a little Budapest, the best Mexican food this side of the border, and that wonder of wonders, California cuisine. Not only that, but there was no snow, no rain, no cold. No weather it was great. There were enough bookstores to satisfy all but the most serious cravings, more than enough movies, and the best little theater I'd seen. There were lectures sponsored by museums, book clubs, printing societies, libraries, and library schools. So happily, I proceeded along with the archives and the reference books and the manuscripts. Then I found out that other of my skills were being utilized by the library. Observation number three, in a small library, the staff is often called upon to perform tasks not considered professional or even library related. For the seven years that I was in graduate school, and for a while, right after my undergraduate years, I had worked for a country club and later a restaurant. I dabbled in catering for a while and thought that that was what I wanted to do, until I discovered that it was the smell of books at three o'clock in the morning that I found more appetizing than Ramaki or baklava. Someone once told me that the Clark was the pleasure palace of rare book libraries on the West Coast. I wasn't exactly sure what he meant by that at the time. Shortly after coming to the Clark, I found out. 
Ever since the Clark came to UCLA, it has been termed the jewel box of the university, the treasure chest. The setting is perfect for lectures and seminars, and even more perfect for receptions and parties. If your staff is small, rather than hire a social director, one looks to the staff to see what person is most qualified for that little chore. I was elected. It seems that my seven years' experience working at a country club while I was amassing various undergraduate and graduate degrees, and which I noted on my resume, had not gone unnoticed by the Clark Librarian. And so it came to pass that I earned the title Events Coordinator, a minor title, with the only glory being a pat on the arm by the former director, an occasional acknowledgement by the present director, several serious job offers from the Offices of Development and Public Affairs at UCLA, and the loss of about a third of my time allotted for cataloging and working with the archives. What does this extra responsibility entail? Every conceivable task involved in organizing an event, and the Clark has plenty of events. We hold three invitational seminars each year. These are all-day affairs, beginning with a coffee hour in the morning, a lecture, rapidly followed by lunch, and then another lecture. The Clark Professor lectures occur nine times during the academic year. These involve setting up our drawing room for the lecture, making sure the sound system and audiovisual equipment is ordered and is in order, ensuring that the speaker arrives in Los Angeles and has a place to stay, arranging for a cocktail party after the lecture, complete with deciding what sort of gin to order and how many finger sandwiches. You learn who goes on what guest list, what kind of flowers to order, who your most reliable wine merchant is, what caterer serves the best box lunch, the best high tea, the best hors d'oeuvres, and the best sit-down dinners. You learn what combo plays the best jazz, what quartet the best baroque, and what harpsichord is the best handle. You learn when to call the press, when to engage a photographer, and when to use your Canon Sure Shot. I wanted to call this paper Fast Lanes, Chain Lines, The Life and Adventures of a Young Rare Book Librarian in Hollywood. It does sum up what it's like to work in the rare book world in Los Angeles. Besides the standard day-to-day -day affairs we have at the library, we also have some major social events. My first solo event was a tree trimming party, a Christmas party held for our unofficial friends. It was truly a glorious occasion. Guests brought the ornaments and staff members produced the refreshments, complete with a Cape Cod eggnog, eggnog from which people are still reeling. Besides working on the exhibition decorations in the invitation and organizing the staff duties in the refreshments, I had to get the tree. The only requirements that it be perfect when viewed from all angles and that it be about 25 feet tall. With a lot of luck, I found the tree and bought it with a purchase order from UCLA, who, of course, took their own time in paying the bill. I spent the entire month of December in peril of my life with threatening phone calls from the vendor, who was not unlike one of those Marlon Brando on the waterfront types. Other events have included a benefit for the library featuring, according to the latest Forbes reports, the vocal talents of the wealthiest man in the nation, for which he let us charge $10 per person and said he would pick up expenses as long as they didn't exceed $1,000. It wasn't a total disaster. We managed to clear about $500. For the chancellor's office, I organized a reception held on the grounds of the library for the new director of the Huntington, during the preparations of which I inadvertently um, insulted the chancellor's wife. Uh, reading Emily Post is a necessity. <laughs> 
There was a reception and wine tasting for the Rare Books and Manuscripts post-conference and a barbecue celebrating our 50 years with UCLA, for which the entertainment consisted of Baroque dancers before dinner at 7 and the Supremes and Temptations on the stereo for a few diehard printers, book collectors, and librarians after 11. The Olympics have also left their mark on the Clark, with our serving as host to a reception on the grounds for 6,000 guests, sponsored by the California Black Legislative Caucus honoring third world athletes. Nothing needs to be said here about the pressures by state legislators on state institutions. The next night, we held a sit-down dinner in the drawing room for 20 Olympic dignitaries, um, complete with waiters and ties and tails and secret servicemen surrounding the grounds. We weren't designated the official rare book library of the 1984 Summer Games, but we certainly earned that title. Where but in Hollywood? At the moment, we're in the planning stages for a big benefit to be held on Halloween, an 18th century magic show. This past month has been spent working out a guest list which will be profitable to us without infringing on other fundraising groups at UCLA, planning the exhibition and putting together the menu, the entertainment, and the keepsake. Closely following this is a production of Dear Nobody, a play co-authored by Terry Bellinger and Jane Marla Robbins, based on the diary of Fanny Burney and starring Ms. Robbins. Then there's the Southern California Johnson Society celebration, our second Christmas party, and a production of The Misanthrope. Life in the Fast Lane, rare book librarianship at the Clark, a different kind of excitement than I visualized when going to library school. Then I was thinking about the exciting life of the mind, surrounded by scholars, great books, and outstanding research collections. More often than not, it is the smell of ramaki, or snow peas and shrimp, at 3 a.m., rather than books at 8. However, I'm not complaining. As the Clark moves into the 80s, and other libraries have felt this too, we're having to rely on money from the private sector so that we can do what rare book libraries want to do, build and develop collections, as well as make those collections accessible to scholars. What I didn't consider a professional part of my work, party planning, has become a very important part of my professional work, fundraising. When I returned to Los Angeles in October, I returned not only to classes at OCLC Pacific, but to classes on fundraising tactics at UCLA Extension. I'm not sure if the preceding remarks qualify as reflections. What I hope to have shown is what life is like in the real world of one rare book library, even though I often have my doubts as to how real the Clark is. After all, we are in Hollywood. Articles written by librarians more often than not describe what life should be like in a rare book library, much as booksellers often describe books in, an I in their ideal states. Job announcements describe ideal positions, and there are not too many ideal positions available. When I'm annoyed with my job, at the numerous tasks piled on me, at the number of different directions I'm pulled, at the endless committee work, I think of having to sit in a small, dusty cubicle with manuscripts for eight hours a day, five days a week, and I thank the heavens for the diversity and flexibility of the position. And I do get frustrated, often with the people that I work with, with readers, and even with the actual manuscripts. But it's not because the people are dull or because the work is uninteresting. And while the work is different from what I imagined, I've not been disappointed in my decision to become a librarian. In the four years that I've been involved in the profession, 
From the first day I entered the basement of Butler Library to tonight, I've enjoyed all aspects of my work, whether it's identifying which John Brown wrote that sermon delivered in the 1740s, or it's organizing a tea for 300 guests. What particular words of advice can I offer those of you starting out in library school? I guess um, the first and most important is to take advantage of being in library school. Now you have the time to think about issues, to formulate your own philosophy of librarianship. Now you have the time to read all you can about the particular, this particular kind of librarianship, of the history of the profession, the history of the book, and of printing. There are great biographies of book dealers, book collectors, printers out there just waiting to be read. Second, take advantage of being in New York. Attend all the lecture seminars and exhibitions that you can. Visit bookstores and go to book fairs. Third, get a part-time job in a library or with a book dealer. What you learn on the job will supplement what you learn in school. And often part-time jobs will lead to full-time professional employment. And if you can't get a job directly related to rare books, or if you sometimes feel that your coursework will never be relevant to what you want to do, make it relevant. Find the rare book connection because it's there. Rare book librarianship is a, high is a high visibility librarianship for career advancement, for the benefit of your library, and for the bettering of the profession of librarianship. You need to be the best librarian that you can be. This will include mastering subject areas and collections, as well as foreign languages and methods of research. It will include learning about the book and understanding its physical makeup and its place in the culture, as well as understanding what our responsibility is to the book. Finally, it will include developing your, and I hate this phrase, interpersonal skills. Gone are the days when we could hide out in the basement or the attic and defend our treasures against all their enemies. I'd like to close by quoting Roger Stoddard of Harvard's Houghton Library from his keynote address to members attending the 1983 Rare Books and Manuscripts Conference. He ended his talk with what should become our Hippocratic Oath, and it goes as follows. I am a rare books librarian. Teach me, learn from me. Help me to preserve the past for the future and to use rare books and manuscripts wisely and intelligently today. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was splendid. I forgot to make an announcement which will please you all very much, I think. Uh, this room is scheduled for major renovation and redecoration very, very soon. In part through a contribution from the Friends of the Book Arts Press, I might add, and in part through a contribution from the University Library, and in large part through the d determination of Kathleen Moltz. Those of you who have watched it slowly fall apart will be particularly pleased at this. It should be uh, in very good shape indeed, although we shall all pay for this along the way, I'm sure, by Christmas time. But the press room has been renovated, and please come now with us for wine and informal conversation with our speaker in room 502.